It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello and welcome to Zhang Hu Hustle once again. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Farmer. And I'm here with my co-host, Eli Kurtz. Today we're talking about violence as communication through the lens of the movie Hero. Eli, do you want to tell us a little bit about the movie? Yeah, so first of all, some technical details. This movie came out in 2002, directed by Zhang Yimou and starring uh, Jet Li, Donnie Yen, Tony Lung, Zhang Ziyi. It's a really star-studded cast. Uh, writers on this movie, Feng Li, Bin Yang, and Zhang Yimou also helped to write the movie. And then I think for this movie in particular, it's important that we credit the cinematographer. Christopher Doyle did some breathtaking work for this thing. Uh, not just in terms of shot composition, but in terms of the colors that are on display, in terms of the way the characters are represented on screen. Really, really wonderful stuff from him. Uh, and I think it helped to make this movie the masterpiece that it is. And yeah, so like I had told you earlier, I was quietly disdainful of this movie for a little while. It is a great movie. And from the very first time I saw it, I was I, I recognized it as a great movie. But I'm also kind of a fight choreography snob. And there's just not great fighting in this. I mean, it's it's good storytelling, but it's the choreography itself. It's not Drunken Master 2. It's not even Iron Monkey. Uh, it's it's a lot of expressive whiffing, I would describe. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of movement, <laughs> but there's not necessarily a lot of cut and thrust of your usual, you know, action sequence. And so it does take a little bit of getting used to. Uh, when I watched this movie, because it had been a while, I watched it when it came out and was just completely blown away mm -hmm. by the storytelling and the artifice and everything about it. And as I watched it this time, I still really enjoy it, but my perspective has changed slightly mm -hmm. as I've been able to like pick the movie apart a little bit. And I was a little worried when I first started watching the movie f for the show that perhaps we had made a mistake <laughs> that that maybe there wasn't going to be the thing that we thought was in the movie but i think that it's actually there really more clearly than if we had picked a different movie absolutely yeah i i kind of went through the same thing you know i was watching the movie and i was like oh yeah are these fights really communication going on right now or or what's happening and i noticed a lot of deference on display and i noticed some really wonderful moments of errants of different scale fighting each other right oh absolutely absolutely do you want to give us a summary of the movie so we can kind of ground the listener in what we're talking yeah about? so i mean this movie is a puzzle box but uh i think we can concisely sum it up here so uh the king i mean it's almost a heist movie i know it really is it's it's got it's so much of a mystery kind of thing it's it's got layers man it's an onion of a movie so in a nutshell the king of chan is the king of one of the most powerful of seven kingdoms in ancient pre-China. And he wants to unify the other seven kingdoms under his banner and create a, a, a large unified state. He has been stymied in his efforts because several years ago, there are two assassins, Broken Sword and Flying Snow, who tried to assassinate him. And ever since then, he's been really paranoid. He refuses to let anyone come close to him. From what I understand, I don't actually know how Sky fits into the, the truth of the story, but I know there's a third assassin, Sky, played by Donnie Yen. And then we enter Jet Li, who is a local prefect, uh, kind of a low figure in the hierarchy of Chinese government. And he has made these claims that he has assassinated 
all three of these assassins who are a thorn in the king's side. And that's the only way he can get an audience with the king. So he gets his audience and he gets wealth and and land and all sorts of stuff too. And he tells the story of how he assassinated these three assassins to the king. And every time he gets a little closer to the king. Uh, and as he tells the story, the king is listening. And then it, you come to find out the king doesn't buy it. The king thinks something else happened. So the king gives his theory about what happened. And we have a whole different recounting of this of this timeline with a different color scheme. And then the king makes his conclusion. And nameless Jet Li is like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, you got some good ideas. You're right. I wasn't telling you the truth earlier, but this is the way it really happened. And then we have a new recounting of the timeline and we have a new color scheme and a new depth of these themes that are being explored. And so it's just, if you're going to watch it once, you need to watch it twice because you need to see what's going on from the very beginning with the context of the end in your mind, you know? Yeah. We're definitely going to talk about that as we, as we go through this. Absolutely. That having, having watched it once, I mean, it's like any, like a heist movie or something where you are really just sort of clinging on to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, or you're just swept away. In this one, you're just swept away by the melodrama and the story and the beauty of what you're watching. Absolutely. And then when you watch it again the second time, you can see where the story elements line up and where they differ between the different versions. So it shares a lot uh, in a story structure with maybe something like Rashomon. I'm not familiar with it myself. I haven't seen it yet. But um... So it's a Kurosawa film, and it's about – the same story told from different perspectives. Cool. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a pretty, I haven't seen it in quite a while, but it, it shares that. But I think this one does it. It's, it's very entertaining uh, and it's very moving mm -hmm. and it's very beautiful. Not that Kurosawa is, is any of those things, but this one's also in an hour and 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you sh you know, if you can watch both, watch both. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, but this is the one that we're talking about today. Yeah. Well, and it's totally different generations of storytelling, too. You know, I mean, the Kurosawa films came out in the 50s and 60s or uh, sometimes even earlier. And this was a 2002 movie. So it's bound to have meaningful differences, even if the stories are similar and the quality is about the same, you know. Right. And the cult and the cultures that it came out of are are different as well. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so we were going to use this movie as an example to talk about violence as communication. And uh, I know this is your big, uh, your theory in particular. It's one that I'm only recently being introduced to. So what, uh, tell us about this theory, Eric. So I, I joke that it's my theory, uh, <laughs> but it is just, it is just a theory of storytelling applied to wuxia movies and people who make wuxia movies know that this is true. Uh, but we're just here to kind of unpack Violence is communication. So violence is communication is the same thing as in another movie, we might have two characters having a heated argument or professing their love for each other or solving a mystery, talking to people. In a musical, that's all done through song. In wuxia, it's through the, the fights that we progress the story and we communicate things between the characters and between the film and the audience. And that's really valuable from a tabletop perspective because we are both audience and author when we play. And so we need to be aware of uh, which directions the communications are flowing so that we can create a coherent and effective wuxia story. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say that fighting in 
wuxia is a part of the storytelling, you're not just talking about plot advancement. You're not just talking about how one character defeats another and then moves on to the next challenge. You're talking about something more representative of the characters in the fights, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I talk about communication, they, it is like they are having a conversation and that they are revealing secrets to each other or they are concealing things on purpose. And that has, that communicates something as well. They in, in other movies, not this one, but there are even mysteries that get solved while people are fighting or things that are revealed that, that expose the nature of those characters. So that's the communication that I'm talking about, that it, it can pass between characters or it can pass from characters to the audience so that we have knowledge that maybe the, the characters don't between them. We'll get into it. I've got I pulled out three examples out of Hero. I was going to say, too, before we jump into specific fights, that this movie is full of paired fights. I think of the six main characters, there are only two examples of pairings that don't actually fight with each other. And I think they're conspicuous, so I want to mention them here at the beginning, and then we can get into them later. Nameless never fights Broken Sword, and the King never fights Snow. And I think we can connect those later on, but I think every other combination of characters fights with each other at some point in time. Yeah, uh, there is a there is a part where Nameless sort of intercedes in a fight between Snow and uh, Broken Sword mm-hmm. to fairly great effect. Yeah, I mean, so it's hard to say that to say that the Nameless didn't participate in that fight, um, but the fact that he waits to the point in the story where he does. Mm-hmm. It demonstrates something about his character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we, I was expressing my concern at the top of this that I was watching this and I, I, I'm not getting the fights in Hero aren't dense. They're not, they're not, uh, communication rich, but they're giving uh, a lot of one theme or one message or maybe a couple of messages back and forth. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we watch something like Iron Monkey, we can get not only, uh, story beats, within the fight but we're also we also get expository things happening mm-hmm. in addition to the characters revealing themselves how they through how they fight right and i would say in iron monkey a lot of the time whenever we get revelations during the fights it's because of the banter whereas in this movie it's just purely physical yeah i would agree and there are some other things i i kind of want to go back and pull apart some of those scenes from Iron Monkey. I think we'll hit that later when we get to some of the feedback. Yeah. But let's let's get into this. So in a Wuxia story, I'm going to make a tautology here. So violence isn't violence, but violence is still violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so what I'm saying is that violence is the means with which characters communicate. Now, in Hero, there is a lot of extra talking. And I even messaged Eli when I was watching it. I said, I can't believe how much people are actually talking in this movie (laughs) because I'm used to the fairly silent protagonist of, you know, the magic blade, Mm -hmm. you know, or the stoic Donnie Yen in Iron Monkey, Mm -hmm. you know, that they may, they have a few lines here and there, but mostly they're communicating through violence. In this one, it's a pretty, we're getting both. We're getting both a, an expository talking scenes. Mm -hmm. And then we are also getting when, once we've got that out of the, once we have the frame set up, then we have these conflicts 
and they demonstrate more of the emotional heart of the movie. Absolutely. So violence isn't violence, but violence is still violence. So it still has the consequences of violence, even though it's just communication. And I think we can see that as a function of the scale of the jaw. Mm-hmm. That if I tell you that I love you, that could kill you. Right. <laughs> yeah. As we see played out in this story specifically, or in one of the yeah, stories. Yeah, and actually people. lots of times. Yeah. So I pulled out uh, a few examples. That there are probably eight or nine different conflicts in this movie. Mm-hmm. They're all fairly short, uh, but I pulled out three that were have a distinct tone to them or are communicating different things to either the characters or the audience. Mm-hmm. So the very first one we get, and I'm, I'm sort of smushing two together here. We start with the character of Sky, who's played by Donnie Yen. Mm-hmm. And this is your typical wuxia scene in a lot of ways. So we see Sky, he's facing off against some soldiers or some guards. Mm-hmm. At the uh, chess house. Yeah, at the chess house. And so he's he soundly beats the first one. Doesn't even take. He's got a uh, a cover over his his staff, the spear that he uses. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take it off the whole time. Uh, one guy down, and then we have an escalation to two guys, and then we have an escalation to four guys come in. And this is all very quickly. This happens very fast yeah. uh, over the course of a couple of minutes, and it's demonstrating both to the audience and to the world the the world that that sky exists in that he is extremely competent that his scale is larger than the scale of the soldiers Mm -hmm. and a conceit of wuxia that we haven't really talked about but that if a a shah or a knight errant is a better fighter than someone else that other person will never beat them unless the situation changes dramatically right and i i use the word dramatically as it's actually intended it has a you need to have a dramatic change rather than maybe even just a situational change. Yeah. So it's not just the case that, you know, a, a chair breaks or something. It's like, it's exactly. It's, it's that something about your character has to change before you can come back and you can fight this person again. Mm-hmm. And before we move into, uh, before we move away from sky versus the soldiers and into sky versus nameless, uh, I want to point out also that this fight is a great example of deference. It's one of the first examples of deference that we see in the movie because the soldiers are all fighting Sky, and he destroys their weapons. He bends them out of shape in the course of the fight. And as soon as that happens to all of them, they're like, oh, wait, sorry, our bad. And they back up and they bow to him, and they're deferring to his greater scale. And it seems like they're just going to let him go. And that's that's such a – you wouldn't see that in – uh, like a Western context, you know, it would be like, oh, well, I'm down. I have to try. No, it would be it would be a, a shootout to the death. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, and, and I think this is what you see a lot in when you know when we talk about tabletop players have a hard time being those guards, mm-hmm. right? And and acknowledging that the the forces that they are facing are too great for them. Yeah, but it makes a nice like even if uh, this isn't really an interpersonal scene, this is just a demonstration of competence. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine a film where that happens, and then one of those soldiers goes off and gets trained or becomes the apprentice of this character, and then you know then their scale increases, yeah, right so that's a that's a really great situation that can grow out of that mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I think the, the difference is it's really on display and it's really noticeable right then. Cause, cause it just ends unlike a fight in a Western movie at all. Yeah. It stops and it, yep. it's, it's kind of jarring when it stops, but then nameless comes in and uh nameless is like, Hey, I want to fight you too. I'm just the local prefect, but uh, let's give it a go. Right. And now we have, we have the competence being demonstrated by nameless because he immediately puts sky not just on his heels, but, but flying backwards to avoid nameless's swift blade. Mm-hmm. You know, these two are literally flying through the air and they have a, uh, they have a really nice little back and forth where they are, they're fighting and nobody's really getting the higher ground. They're sort of moving backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. And it was at this point that I wanted to hit on something from Robin Laws and his Hamlet's hit points book where he talks about story beats Mm -hmm. and story beats are a way of telling the audience things and also creating drama within the story. And in this one, there's not that much actual communication about the, what the characters are like. We already respect sky because we've seen him be gracious in victory. Mm hmm. And we still don't know exactly what the deal is with Nameless, right? So we're not exactly sure who we're rooting for in this fight. Yeah. Um, but we're watching them go back and forth. And story beats have uh, – they're either up or they are down. Um, there are a few that are level, but mostly they're up or they are down. So if they go up, then that increases the hope that we as the audience feel for the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And if they are down, it increases the fear that we have for the protagonist. So if you watch this and you say that Jet Li is our protagonist, or even Sky is our protagonist, you watch them fight backwards and forwards. And as they fight backwards and forwards, their positioning changes. Uh, it goes it goes up and down on this fear cycle as they move backwards and forwards on the screen. They're, they are both literally positioned and fictionally positioned. Mm-hmm. At this point, the fight stops. And we get into the art film that is Hero. Yeah, well, and you know, something I was going to point out, too, in terms of who is the protagonist in this scene, Western understanding of color symbolism is different from Eastern understanding of of color symbolism, right? Mm -hmm. And for us, we get in here and we see that the king is in this cavernous black room. He's wearing all black. We see that Jet Li as a local prefect is also wearing all black. And... It's just really ambiguous for us as the viewer, as especially as a Western audience, thinking like, oh, black, are, are these people the bad guys? And then we have this fight with Sky, and everybody, the soldiers, Nameless, even the, the chess house, is all really dark colors, except for Sky, who's this nice, warm orange. And mm-hmm. in Eastern culture, it turns out that black is considered to be heaven's color, but it's specifically mysterious the mysterious colors of heaven so it's an exalted color but it's also an unknown color and it's interesting that in the first moments of this movie just in terms of the color theory there's a lot of ambiguity about which one of them is the protagonist so it's almost like the hope fear cycle that you were talking about earlier is doubled in this fight because we're not only understanding that jet Li is the protagonist according to the movie poster and we're not only seeing that Jet Li is a protagonist because he's the first kind of perspective character that we have. But also, it it's hard to tell whether Sky is really in the wrong. He's just kind of minding his own business and people are picking fights with him. And he's also the one who seems to be kind of zen, calm, and gracious in victory, like you said. 
So it's an it's an interesting layer of ambiguity in this fight as we're sort of getting to know people. And I think that goes back to these themes of being identified that we've talked about, at least in the last episode, maybe in the first one we touched on it too. Right. And so Jet Li's obscuration is communicating things to the audience that perhaps we don't know Jet Li like like we thought we were going to. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we thought we were going to get – it says hero right on the thing, but is that true? Yeah, and who is the right? hero? Is, <laughs> and who's the hero? And then Sky acts like a hero. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I really like your, your, your take that the hope and fear cycle is doubled because I think we're getting both at the same time. And I think that's a really masterful storytelling mm-hmm. that we can both hope for Jet Li and hope for Sky. I'm sorry, we can hope for Nameless and we can hope for Sky. Mm-hmm. And then we can fear for them both when the when the fiction shifts in either direction. Sure. Uh, I think that's real I think that's really clever. Absolutely. And then so once we get into the fight with Nameless and Sky and they've done their intro plays against each other, they stop because the musician who is in the chess fight or in the chess house, he starts to pack up and leave and they're like, Hey, can you please play a song for us? <laughs> and I love that. Right. Moment. Can you give us some battle music? Please? Yeah. Yeah. We need, we need something to fight to here, but then they don't really fight. They have a battle in the depths of their minds. Yeah. And they, they are just anticipating because they've had this, this interaction where they have communicated their fight style to the other person. Mm hmm. Now they can fight without fighting. Yeah, they become known to each other. And and all of a sudden, it's way more about strategy than it was about physical effort. And this is an important theme that's going to come back later in the movie that I really want to hit on. Um, But when you first – when it first happens, I'm always a little bit like, well, this this is kind of a cheat. Like, like I wanted some some real fighting here. And they're just doing this mind battle thing. And then it it does end up having real-world consequences when the tension breaks. Then – Nameless is able to stab Sky. Absolutely. And kill, him, and kill him. Well, and first of all, I love the line right afterward. We get a shot of the king listening to the story, and he's so rapt that his eyes are closed, and he's picturing it in his mind. And his first words, how swift your blade must be. Right. So something about even Nameless's recounting this to the king is also communicating in that way. Mm-hmm. But he, he knows he knows Sky. And he knows nameless now, and because the king's the king's thing is that he is incredibly perceptive. Mm-hmm. He he can see through any sort of obscuration. Mm-hmm. But the thing about this fight that that I want to I want to hit on is we're going to come back to it because it's going to get recontextualized as we learn more about the fights in the movie. Because right now it's just sort of your intro fight, right? You know, it's boss one. And I will note as a bit of a choreography snob that. Uh, the mind battle is way more impressive than what they did before because what they did in the actual physical fight that they had was all slow motion. It was all close up. It was all a lot of cuts on these, uh, on the shots and everything. But then when they do the mind battle, there's a lot of at speed or maybe even sped up a little bit, a lot more impressive, intricate choreography, uh, wider shots, longer shots, that sort of thing. And it's interesting that once they become known elements to each other that is the point when even though they're not fighting in the physical world they still have the most blistering choreography that we've seen so far right and actually we'll see through the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. to be to be quite honest uh the the thing that i really like about this fight is that in the ways that some of the other fights are 
it, very emotionally explicit in terms of their communication. This one has a very sense, even though it's taking place in a, a mindscape, there is a sense of the space that those characters are in. Mm-hmm. And every time there is a, a tone shift and a power shift within the fight, there is a physical shift within the fight. So Sky might hang upside down by his feet and fight Nameless like that. And then he'll knock Nameless back and then Nameless will get knocked back and then bounce off of a, a post. Right. Yeah. And then he's changing the, the motion of the fight. He's moving, you know, uh, Sky moved up and then Nameless moved sideways and he comes back. And then every time there's that motion, and I talked about these sort of literal versus fictional positioning. So those things are in sync and the, the, the power keeps shifting back and forth between them. And we can see that for a, a, a large portion of the fight, they are even. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I think that is connected to the idea that, you know, uh, uh, sky moves up and nameless moves back or sideways or something like that. That's, that's literal positioning, but it's also affecting the hope and fear cycle that you were talking about earlier. Exactly. Exactly. So when, when one gets pushed back, our fear for them goes up mm-hmm. because now they're losing. And, and so that that's communicating back and forth with the audience. This fight is not, like I said, it's, it's a little more standard and we're not getting a lot more information. I wish this fight gave us a little bit more information about sky mm-hmm. uh, because after this point, he kind of doesn't matter that much. Yeah. We really don't get a clear picture of who sky is. Uh, we know as far as I can tell, he seems like, you know, basically a swashbuckler. He's some dude who wanders around and fights people and, and he has a fun time with it. Right. And, and he, he, is a threat to the order that the king wants to instill right. in the area because mm-hmm. he is a part of the Jung Hu. Right? Mm-hmm. He has this large scale. And so he if he's not controlled, right, then the then the king doesn't actually have control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're gonna jump forward a little bit in the movie. There is a a very lovely fight between Moon, who is the apprentice to Broken Sword. Mm-hmm. Played by Zhang Fly- Ji, right? And versus Flying Snow, who is the romantic partner of Broken Sword. Mm-hmm. Moon has some unrequited love for Broken Sword, and yeah. right before this scene, because this is pure melodrama, Broken Sword has taken Moon into his bed and then rejected her, and then Flying Snow kills Broken Sword. Yeah. So Moon goes to fight flying snow because she has murdered both her master and the man that she loves Mm -hmm. and moon is clearly outmatched oh Uh, she comes in and everything about her is is messy Mm -hmm. she's communicating through her fighting that she has taken a, a a bunch of emotional trauma from two betrayals from her unrequited love being trampled by broken sword and then that's also in conflict with that she loved him and that he was killed. Mm-hmm. I think this fight is an example of deference in two ways. Uh, first of all, whenever Broken Sword decides to take Moon into his bed and he basically dishonors her love for him uh, and then he also rejects her afterward, that's him violating the code of deference and it spells his literal doom he cheats on flying snow to make her mad 
And then he also rejects Moon. And then he talks to Flying Snow about it. And then she kills him for it. That's a It's a really clear chain of causality to me. And then whenever Moon goes after Flying Snow because Flying Snow killed her master, Moon is in a conflict of deference here because Moon's master was killed. She has to avenge him. But Flying Snow is miles better than Moon is. And so her like Flying Snow's scale is a lot greater than Moon's. And Moon is being deferent, but she's also violating her deference by challenging Snow without a recognition of Snow's scale. And again, it spells her doom. So everyone, all three points of this triangle, have done something that will eventually spell their doom. Mm-hmm. Broken Sword violates his relationship with Flying Snow and with Moon. And then Moon challenges Flying Snow in what should be the right thing to do because Flying Snow has killed Moon's master, mm-hmm. but is not acting in a way that that is different to Flying Snow's scale. Well, I mean, just to make Flying Snow's scale clear, she she fights nature fights for her <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that's how powerful she is she's not right she's like i have a sword sure but i think i'd rather attack you with all the leaves of the forest <laughs> and there's just no way moon with her little knives can can compete with that there's no way and flying snow has has killed her lover and then also she, at the beginning she refuses the challenge of moon she's trying to tell her look what you're doing here isn't going to work. So Moon's completely outmatched. She, through all of her actions, through her fighting style, through the way that she's shot, the way is she's completely sloppy, and she's not as talented as Flying Snow, but she has this emotional power. And then she gets not a hit in, but just a cut. She cuts Flying Snow's hair as they're flying through the air, and a little bit of the cloth that Flying Snow is wearing. Mm-hmm. And that's where the fight turns. And Flying Snow is her, – her goal at the beginning was just leave me alone to my regret, right? I have I'm, – I'm angry and I'm sad and I have done the wrong thing. Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And Moon won't leave her alone because she is young and she is reckless and she is hurt and she was in love. And all of these things are coming through in the fight. And then when that, that cut comes and the, the fight turns and Flying Snow says, look, if you want to die – I can make that happen for you. Yeah. Yeah. What a line too, right? (laughs) Yeah. And she literally, like Eli was saying, she just whips up a wind and throws moon around in this beautiful balletic swirl of leaves and takes her apart. It's even clearer now that moon really doesn't stand a chance. And eventually she is killed. But you were talking about the turning point in this fight is when uh, Flying Snow's hair gets cut, right? Just like a lock right. of her hair gets cut free. And I've noticed as we've been watching these movies that it seems like cosmetic damage is a really common trope in these movies. And almost every time it does demonstrate a change. So one example that I can point out to point out really clearly is in Iron Monkey, Whenever Donnie Yen uses his no shadow kick and he's kicking after the the fallen Shaolin priest, right? And then the Shaolin priest just totally deflects all of his kicks from what is Donnie Yen's most powerful technique. And then we look down and Donnie Yen's shoe is just ripped to shreds 
And in the Magic Blade, there are a few instances where somebody's clothing is cut and they're like, oh, game changer, now I'm going to hurt you, you know? Right. You've, you've gotten inside of the, the bubble. I have a certain space based on my scale. I have a certain amount of space that I just own. Yeah. Everything that's within this sphere is under my control. Yeah. And the more powerful you are, the, the, the larger that is. I mean, Flank's nose is enormous, but Moon, through her, her anger and her grief, and I think also because Flying Snow isn't doing the thing that she should, like she should just fight Moon, teach her a lesson, and let her live. Mm-hmm. But she avoids the fight. And so when she avoids the fight, that re- I think that just brings her scale in just a little bit. Her personal power comes in because she's not, she's not moving in the direction that she's supposed to be moving in. And Moon has all of this extra energy because of her emotions. And mm-hmm. it gives her just enough to get inside Flying Snow's sphere. And then from there, it's, oh, okay, I wasn't taking you seriously before, mm-hmm. but now I'm taking you seriously. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to notice, too, like we mentioned in Iron Monkey, Miss Orchid is fighting those fallen Shaolin monks, and she's clearly better than them. But then they introduce the element of poison, and it's dishonorable, but it gives them an edge. And in this movie, Moon is clearly outmatched, but her emotional reserves elevate her scale a little bit you know that's an interesting consideration that uh, the ways in which a person's scale can be artificially blown up for a little while in certain circumstances right and it almost always spells the doom of the character oh yeah it's it's definitely risky territory it it's a thing where our hero if we watch a movie like um well i think like like uh legend of drunken master Mm -hmm. uh he blows up his scale at the end in order to take it on. And then he ends up suffering those consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His uh, life becomes in danger. I think that's, that's pretty good there, but that's showing uh, the emotional conflict. So mm-hmm. moon and flying snow, this could have been them verbally sparring. Mm-hmm. And it almost is in a certain way. You see that, you know, moon would come at her and say, I can't believe you did that. I was in love with him. And, I can't believe you killed him, da, 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 da. And Flying Snow would say, I'm not even going to deal with you right now. You don't matter to me. And then yeah. Moon would say something like, well, we both loved him. That would pierce the bubble between them for a second. And then that situation would change. And then they could have a more direct confrontation, which then Moon would lose. It's like they have to they have to find a way to circumvent the courtly manners of the situation, the deference of the situation, and that's how they come to blows. Right. So that's the emotional conflict. And that can happen. There's a spot earlier in the movie when Nameless and Flying Snow meet and they are defending the calligraphy school mm-hmm. from the Reign of Arrows. And there is a moment in there, and it's reinforced later, that yes, they are they are doing all of these amazing sweeps and kicks and defending the school from this barrage of arrows by just deflecting them. But they are also, in a way, like flirting or courting with each other. Interesting. When Broken Sword and Nameless fight after Flying Snow gets killed. Mm-hmm it is clear that they are both grieving over a woman that they love. Absolutely. While Broken Sword is is doing his calligraphy thing inside of the school, Flying Snow and Nameless are having an interaction outside. And it doesn't make sense until you rewatch the movie. 
because you discover that they both have the same perspective on the conflict that's going on of the king versus their homeland. Because mm-hmm. they're both from the same homeland and it is in danger. As we, yeah, as we come to find out. As we come to find out. And so that scene, they're not fighting. They're really just demonstrating. Yeah, well, you see, you noticed it seemed like flirtation or courting whenever Flying Snow and Nameless were fending off the arrows together. And I guess they do steal a lot of glances toward each other. But for me, that was another moment of revelation, you know. Uh, and and it, the thing that sealed the deal for me is after that moment, because this, whenever they're both demonstrating their scale by fending off an entire army's worth of arrows, uh, it's also the exact same moment that Broken Sword is making his calligraphy Mm -hmm. and on a quick detour i don't know that this tracks to any chinese cultural values but uh the idea that magic requires sacrifice what i'm not saying that broken swords calligraphy is necessarily magic but it is an identifier and what a potent identifier to be making a calligraphy symbol of the word sword while your home is being assaulted by thousands of soldiers and your friends, the students, are all saying that we will make ourselves immortal with our words, even if these arrows cut down our bodies. At the same time, the two people with huge martial scales are fending off all of these arrows. Like, those ingredients would make such a powerful magic spell if this was about magic you know what i mean well and i think it is about magic to a certain extent because he's creating the 20th style of writing the word sword which does not exist yeah Yeah. he's literally casting a spell Mm -hmm. well and i i don't want to get uh again i don't want to get too sidetracked it's interesting that the the very nature of there being 20 different characters to spell sword is sort of the motivation for the king of Qian to be unifying everyone. He's like, can you imagine how do people communicate when there's only when when there are 20 different ways to say something? How do you how do you make that happen? And that gets to some confusion values that we can talk about later, but what I wanted to say about this scene is that at the end after Nameless and Flying Snow fend off all of these arrows, they don't actually talk, but then Nameless comes in and looks at the character that Broken Sword has has painted. And he says, beautiful calligraphy. And Broken Sword responds with beautiful swordplay. And I think both of them realize in that moment that they each have been given the keys to understand each other, you know? Right. And it takes Nameless. I think, I think Broken Sword, after having drawn the, the word for sword, Mm -hmm. has reached a point that he is, he is the most advanced character in regards to wisdom. Oh yeah. At that point, and he sees he sees the abilities of Nameless, and he recognizes he recognizes that spirit. But it takes Nameless the rest of the movie to close that gap with Broken Sword. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole project that Nameless engages in is to study this calligraphy so that he can understand Broken Sword. Because I think Broken Sword, for a lot of the movie, has a greater scale than Nameless does. But this calligraphy is the pathway for nameless to increase his own scale to, to be an equal with broken sword. Right. I agree. So let's, so we've been talking about broken sword a lot and I want to get to the the third example here, Mm -hmm. talking specifically about broken sword because he, we find out in the movie that he disagrees with nameless's plan to assassinate the King. Mm -hmm. And then we find out that broken sword 
and Falling Snow have already this they were the assassins from before and we get to see their raid on the castle and their attempt to assassinate the king Mm -hmm. and this is really the crux of the movie for me we see two people come in and they we see the scale of these of these shah right coming in and they're laying waste to hundreds of people Mm -hmm. nothing can stand before them and broken sword goes in to confront the king and falling snow is outside defending him against an entire army while these two have a one-on-one fight. Yeah. And you know, I hadn't considered it before, but this throne room is kind of a heterotopia, like what we were talking about. You know, the battle is raging outside and there is a battle inside this room, but it's adjacent to the battle outside. It is. And I think it also is in a, it is in a psychological space as well mm-hmm. as a physical space. Uh, Absolutely. There's so much cloth in this movie. I mean, that's one of the themes that we go through, but this, this, <laughs> yeah. uh, this throne room is just draped in layer after layer of this green cloth that hangs down from the ceiling. And yeah, it creates these obstructions cloth. of the, of between broken sword and the King as they fight back and forth. Mm-hmm. And as the fight goes on, these get cut as they're, as they're going back and forth and they're hiding among them. And they're having this, this one-on-one duel. And the thing that I noticed, I noticed it right away, and I went back and I rewatched the fight a couple of times, was that Broken Sword and the King have almost exactly the same fighting style. Oh. Uh, yeah, you're kind of right. Yeah, and that even like the noises that the King makes, because he makes a lot of he makes a lot of noises as he's fighting. <laughs> I love it. I love it too. But it actually that actually feels like that syncs up with the music that's playing between Sky and Nameless. Oh. There's a vocal component on top of the on top of the instrument. Yeah. And it that feels like these two are they are playing their music by fighting each other. And then there's also this vocal component that's going above it. So everything is sort of layering on top of each other once we get to this mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. And you see their fighting styles match and their and then their swords lock and you see them make eye contact and then you see Broken Sword close his eyes because he is now absorbed what the king's purpose is yeah and he can no longer kill the king yeah the king is a completely known element right and it, it's it's at that point that all of the cloth falls down all of the literal barriers between the the two fighters fall down and all of the barriers between them mentally and spiritually fall down as well and they cool. they recognize each other's spirits mm-hmm. it's kind of a fast scene like I wish the movie had taken a little bit more time because I think, and that may just be because of my Western perspective. Like I had to watch it again to really understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, why did, why did he stop? He had the King right there. And it's because they communicated their, their spirit. And he recognized the value of the King's vision within that fight scene. Yeah. Which is why he, he doesn't agree to help nameless. Mm-hmm. And why eventually he has to communicate his idea to Nameless. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's there's that passing of the wisdom from the king through the conduit of Broken Sword, and then back into Nameless, and then back to the king. Yeah, and so I wanna I wanna take a quick detour here. Something that I've noticed in terms of how Nameless is communicated to the king, right? Mm-hmm. Because Nameless is telling the king his story this entire time, and 
what we see first, like I said, some of the first words that the king speaks to Nameless is how swift your blade must be, right? Mm -hmm. And what we get from that is that Nameless is quick and Nameless is cunning because he somehow managed to track down this this Shah, right? And then we start to get a picture of what Nameless is like. And he tells his entire story, which we know to be a lie. And then the king says, I don't buy it. And then the king tells his story, his version of the story. And in that version of the story, whenever Nameless goes to visit Flying Snow and Broken Sword, he's standing in the middle of the table in that blue library. And he's like, hey, check this out. This is my power. And he knocks uh, the water up into the air. And then he destroys that entire library. That thing, it kind of kills me. It kills me too. I actually, it kind (laughs) of bums me out a little bit. And I wrote in my notes, I was like, okay, so according to the king, Nameless is a library-destroying cocky asshole, right? (laughs) He's he's just not – he's not a good guy by the king's estimation, which I thought was kind of ironic because the king's project is to unify the whole world so that everybody stops speaking all these different languages and starts speaking just one. And it's interesting that the king would think – Oh, well, Nameless is the kind of guy who would destroy a whole library when really that's what the king is actually doing in his in his conquest. Well, that's what his soldiers did earlier when when they were raining arrows down on the calligraphy school. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's an interesting parallel between the two characters in that way. But that's what we get from from the king. That's his read of Nameless, right? Mm -hmm. But then when Nameless goes back and tells the story of what really happened, he's in that library and he does demonstrate his skill. But the way he does it is by destroying a single calligraphy brush amidst an entire like air full of hundreds of these calligraphy brushes. And so, yes, he is quick and yes, he is cunning but he's not about wanton destruction. He's only after that one calligraphy brush. And if you'll permit me, he he's not after the entire kingdom of, of Chin. He's after one person, the king, you know. And right. that's he makes a, a clear... surgical strike in there. And yeah. then and then that actually plays through because you find out that Sky isn't dead. And right. then you find out that, you know, all of these people that he has stabbed, he has non fatally stabbed. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's such a it's such a cool back and forth of trying to figure out another character from the king's perspective. You know, he's like, oh, this is what I've presented with. Here's my theory. Oh, no, it was different. It's not about wanton destruction. He doesn't want to destroy the kingdom because, of course, that would be the king's perspective. He's like, I am the kingdom. I am the one who is unifying the kingdom. And anyone who wants to kill me must want an end to the entire thing. But Nameless says, no, no, no. I I don't care about that. I only care about you because you're the one responsible. And whatever happens to the wider world is not my concern. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. And I think that Broken Sword is the character who makes Nameless realize that the king is not the entire kingdom. Yeah, well, they have have an interaction. And he says, well, you know, aren't you you a man of of Zhao? And he said, yes, I am. And he says, isn't the king going to destroy Zhao? And he Mm -hmm. says, yes, he will. But he finds the king's goal of unification and bringing an end to these these wars to be the most noble goal. Yeah, And it, it reads strangely to us because it's sort of like Luke going to fight Darth Vader and then going, oh, no, you know what? I think this empire is a good idea. Yeah, There's a lot of war going on. If we just had an empire, it would it would. It would stop all of that. Yeah. And it occurred to me while I was watching this movie that 
it is sort of a propaganda film for Chinese patriotism. I don't think oh, absolutely. I, I need to clarify that. I mean, patriot uh, propaganda is kind of a neutral term. You know, I mean, it's just something that's supposed to influence someone's decision toward a particular goal. That's that's how I'm using it. But it is definitely a story about it, it's it's sort of you know a founding father's story for us. If it was if we were to watch 1776 or something, it might be similar feelings stirred in our hearts as people watching Hero and seeing what is essentially the birth of modern China. Because the word, the one word that Broken Sword gives to Nameless to ponder after he says, please don't kill the king, is Tian Sha, which is a term that has long for for a long time been used to refer to Chinese imperial authority. And it's two characters, Tian and Sha, Sha not being a, a, a knight errant like we've been using it it's a different uh it's a different character entirely but the two words together mean under heaven and so broken sword wants nameless to consider think about everything else if you do this one thing and you bring down this king it's going to create a lot of tumult and we're going to be thrown back into this civil war that we've been in for so long or we could end it and we could all be united that's such an interesting juxtaposition considering the king's perspective on nameless throughout this entire movie. Right, and it's it shares the quality of of the revisionist western. Mm-hmm. So revisionist westerns, late period westerns are almost all about a gunslinger bringing an end of the age of the gunslinger. Mhm. And here we see the Jung Hu bringing an end to the Jung Hu. Mhm. If we assassinate the king, then we can keep doing our thing. We can keep having our scale, but many people will suffer. Mm-hmm. But if we use our skills and we use our wisdom and we don't do that, then our roles are now useless. And they give up their, the so sky broken sword and falling snow. Um, all I'm sorry, flying snow. I keep doing that. Uh, <laughs> all um, they all give up their weapons mm-hmm. without their weapons. I mean, they're still, I mean, they're still, they clearly have a huge scale, but they, that's them saying, I am willing to give up this life for the thing that, for the thing that that you are going to accomplish. Now, some of them do it so that Nameless can assassinate the king, but Broken Sword does it because he no longer, he will no longer need to fight. Yeah. Well, and it's all tied up by the end. You know, the the King of Chin gives his, gives his speech at the end. And I, I pulled up the quote here so that I can summarize it at least, but he talks about how the scroll, the symbol for sword that Broken Sword has created, doesn't contain secrets of swordsmanship. It's what reveals Broken Sword's highest ideal. And he says, in the first stage, man and sword are interchangeable. Here, even a blade of grass can be used as a lethal weapon. And like you said, their scale is immense even without their weapons. They don't need them. Uh, and we can see that from Flying Snow. She commands the leaves. But then, in the next stage, the sword resides not in the hand, but in the heart. Even without a weapon, the warrior can slay his enemy from a hundred paces. Uh, and then the ultimate ideal is when the sword disappears altogether. The warrior embraces all around him. The desire to kill is gone. Only peace remains. And that's such a cool speech when the King of Chin gives it, but it really is a microcosm of the entire story that we've been told. Both, I mean, I, I hadn't noticed the representation you pointed out about how they literally gave up their weapons to present to the king. They were their swords were disappearing altogether, essentially. Exactly. You know, we've, we've gone into this movie a lot. Uh, we've gone into some extra stuff beyond just the communication aspect. But this movie's really rich. 
Oh yeah. Uh, and it has a lot of, has a lot of things in it. It's a challenge to break apart. And I think it's, it would be a challenge to bring parts of it to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's probably about time to see what we can do there and bring some of those gameable ideas. See what gameable ideas are within hero. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of violence being communication, what do you, what do you take away from this that we could take to the table? So the, the first thing, uh, and I actually have it listed last, uh, which, you know, is just like me, but <laughs> is that hero has, a has a fairly complicated plot or a complicated structure. It's all of these nested stories. We keep recontextualizing the things that we've seen before or having them remixed. And then we see like that might've ha- that might be how it happened, but this might also be how it happened. And this is actually how it happened. So it's sort of like the end of clue in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but serious and melodramatic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the thing about the, see so if this complex structure, but all of the little parts within that are very simple. If they had had this complex structure and then had a complex little mini dramas within each one of those, this movie would be incomprehensible. Yeah. And it is a thing that especially game masters have a tendency to do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody go, I have this great idea for a campaign. It's going to have this and this and this going on, this and this and this going on. And I'm going to do a, a flash forward and a flashback and do all of this stuff. And it's like, well, how about you pick one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Pick, pick. If you want a complicated structure where you flash back and you flash forward, that's fine. But then do something simple. Yeah. Right. Or you can have a, you can have a linear, a very linear story like Magic Blade. And then you have lots of little complicated things happen, mm-hmm. but you can't really do both. Yeah. And I was going to say, in terms of creating a game out of this, it occurs to me that to create a complicated structure out of simple parts, it will be important to make sure that characters are more archetypal than nuanced. You know, they can have nuance, but I think the nuance comes from interacting with other archetypal characters that are inherently in conflict with the player character, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the complexity is the structure in the sense that the structure of this game is about how these characters interact with each other. Right. And I think one of the things that this does that I do see in uh, tabletop role-playing games Mm -hmm. are triangles. Mm -hmm. So we see there's all of these trios of characters and they all have different relationships to each other. Mm-hmm. So I've listed a few out. I think we could probably go and make trios of most of the character, most of the characters in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and and figure out what they what they had. So Broken Sword, Flying Snow, and Moon have a literal love triangle. Yeah. So Broken Sword and Flying Snow are lovers. Broken Sword and Moon are master and apprentice, and then Moon and Flying Snow have a jealousy because they are both in love with Broken Sword. Mm -hmm. They have a literal love triangle. And then we get to the triangle of flying snow, broken sword, and nameless. And I posit a love triangle there. It is not as strong as the first one. Yeah, but I could see it. But it it is is there. But then they also have a conflict in vision. Mm -hmm. Because flying snow is in the assassinate the king camp. Yeah. All the way to the end. 
in such a strong fashion that it causes Broken Sword's death every iteration of this story. Yeah. Broken Sword has stepped above the conflict to see the wisdom in unifying the kingdom. And then Nameless is the one that moves, that starts on Flying Snow's side and moves towards Broken Sword. Yeah. Uh, I want to point out something too. You mentioned at the end of the movie, both Broken Sword and Snow die. And it's interesting to me that they are symbols for, like you said, the Zhang-Hu ending the Zhang-Hu because Broken Sword demonstrates the ultimate warrior's ideal when the sword disappears altogether and Flying Snow kills him because he's demonstrating it and he knows this is the only way he can impress the lesson upon her. And he is dying and she's distraught because she's killed her lover. But then at the end, she too dies as she lived by the edge of the sword and she kills herself and so both of them stayed true to their principles to the final moments of the movie, and both of them die. And that is very much emblematic of the Zhang-Hu, but it's also an interesting subversion of it because Broken Sword died because he gave it up, whereas Flying Snow died and killed Broken Sword because she would not give it up. Right. And she says they actually have a, they have an explicit interaction. And then on, on top of the implicit sword fight at the end where she kills him, he says, what, what can I say to convince you? Yeah. And she says nothing. And, and she then, says, she says, pick up your sword. Yeah. <laughs> and so he picks it up and then he drops it and then she kills yep. him. And then and she, she kills says, him. And she asks repeatedly, why didn't you defend yourself? Why Why didn't you defend yourself? And his response is, so you'll finally believe me. And it's just, like, I get chills just thinking about it. It's so... Oh, absolutely. It's, it's so, so beautiful, good. and it's so tragic. Yeah. And it really expresses the core idea of kind of what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. That there is... So we can talk about communication, but we can also talk about failure of communication. Mm-hmm. And they fail to communicate. Absolutely. They, uh, I think it's because Flying Snow wants to communicate too much through violence. And, and we see a little bit of how that's inadequate in some situations, in a lot of situations even. Right. Absolutely. So yeah. the couple, a couple more uh, triangles I want to highlight. Mm-hmm. So Nameless, Broken Sword, and the King. Mm-hmm. Eventually all, they start out in different spots, but they, they eventually share a vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they become the triad against everyone else Mm -hmm. and then broken sword flying snow and the king this is sort of i see this as like a wisdom versus decorum that broken sword has the wisdom Mm -hmm. and i think is trying to pass that on to flying snow Mm -hmm. and has received some of that from the king and then it's a conflict of how do you act based on what you know to be right yeah, and I would say that Broken Sword is ultimate wisdom in this triangle, and Flying Snow is ultimate decorum, because the, her whole reason for wanting to kill the king is because he he killed her father, who was a, a general on the opposing right. army, you know? Right. And the king in this situation is the combination of wisdom and decorum that we see on display. Absolutely. So there's there's your triangle there, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we've got pure wisdom, decorum, and then we have a, the combination of the two. Yeah. And then they can then they can pull they can pull against each other. And with these last two triangles, I want to point out something too. This is what I mentioned in the beginning, um, in terms of the people who don't fight. And I realized right after I said it that of course Broken Sword and Nameless fight. It's whenever Flying Snow is dead and they have their gorgeous fight on top of the water. Yeah, but they barely fight. 
Well, they barely fight, and it's also a mind battle. So, it, I mean, it, it, I think it counts, but just barely. I agree with you. Right, right. But here's something that I noticed right at the end of watching this movie most recently, which, you know, how many times have I watched this movie? It's uncountable. But anyway, Nameless and the King are foils of Broken Sword and Flying Snow. And I mean that as units, they are foils of each other. Nameless and Broken Sword follow the same narrative path as the King of Chin and Snow follow. And those two units of, of characters are really closely narratively linked. Next time you watch the movie, keep an eye out for that and see how much the story beats and the themes that are represented in them are doubled under those characters. And so while the king is the the combination of wisdom and decorum, and while the king is also an enemy of Broken Sword and Nameless who nonetheless shares a vision with them, the king is at the same time exactly like snow and that he's very comfortable in the world of decorum and he's willing to live by the world of decorum and he's actually willing to conquer it and make it his own whereas nameless and broken sword are the people who eventually say let's let's be wise instead you know let's let's do what's right instead of what is appropriate yeah no i agree that's that's a a really nice encapsulation of, mm-hmm. of the relationships between all these characters. Yeah. Um, Maybe not a game so of we talked idea, about, but <laughs> we talked about, <laughs> we talked about triangles. We talked yeah. about, um, complicated structure and simple structure. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk. Uh, I've got a few more things in here. The movie is drenched in themes and signifiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't watch the movie and not absorb that. Um, right. It's, it's, and it's a really nice thing to do at, if you are going to game with it, we talked about it last time of using themes, but I want to talk about just really making them very explicit because mm-hmm. this movie puts them right out in front and it says, it says this, these are the themes that are going on in this scene and everything that in the, in this scene relates to these and bring, bring them up and we're going to keep bringing them up. We're going to keep bringing them up. And it, it sometimes helps at the table to be more obvious than you think you need to be. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things that I think would really benefit, you know, that's, that's what themes are one of those places that, that I think you can be a little obvious, right? Because when you're inside of the trope, it doesn't, you don't feel like you're inside the trope, mm-hmm. right? And like, likewise, when you are inside of a theme, unless it just gets really tired, you, you don't feel it, you, you get, you get the effect of the theme, but you don't feel weighed down by it. Yeah, it's important to be explicit about the themes you're presenting. It's, I mean, communication is always hard, you know? I mean, that's one of the fundamental problems of, of humanity is, is communication is hard. But I think that this genre is a really great example of why communication is so important. Whether you're communicating through violence or whether, as a character, or whether you're communicating through words with your friends at the table that you're playing with, it's really important to be explicit and distilled about your communication. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and if you think you are right on the line of doing, like doing it the right amount, mm-hmm. do a little more. Go a little further. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I mean, it was like my drama teacher was like, you need to be 50% louder and you need mm-hmm. to be 50% slower. Yeah. Right. Like you need to give it that extra, <laughs> that extra bit. Yeah. My, my, my drama professor was always like, Show me what you think is a 10 in terms of exaggerated performance. And then he's like, okay, so 
pretend that's a five give me a 10 now you know <laughs> <laughs> yep it's like yep. S- swing for those fences oh student <laughs> right and i and i think if everyone can do that then you'll get this really heightened sense that we get in these wuxia films yeah of of if if everyone is is sort of swinging for the fences in that way that i think that's really powerful absolutely uh, i have one more thing in gameable ideas that i want to hit on and it's cool and this sounds weird but it's that wrestling isn't wrestling. <laughs> so there is a video. Uh, I will link it in the show notes called wrestling isn't wrestling. And it is all about how wrestling isn't a sport. It's storytelling. Yeah. And it's a great video too. I it's just- a really entertaining video. So I would recommend that you, that you watch it, but I thought about it in regards to the fight between nameless and flying snow, because it's an artificial fight. Mm-hmm. Flying snow goes in, Knowing that she must die mm-hmm. to further the cause of assassinating the king, mm-hmm. and Nameless doesn't want to at the beginning, and so they have a they they get to have a a dramatic push pull of him not wanting to, and then she makes him, and then he finally kind of buckles down and he does it, and she lets him. So they are working together in this fight to because they are also surrounded by soldiers. Mm-hmm. So it needs to look real. Mm-hmm. They are doing a wrestling show and it makes it when, when you and your opponent can work together to heighten the scene and be more concerned about the other person's giving the other person things to do than uh, just worrying about what you're going to do. And if they're doing the same thing back, then it really raises how much you can communicate. It really just elevates the scene in general in terms of its quality. I, I will build off of that. I have two quick ideas for, for gameable ideas. First of all, on the subject of wrestling isn't wrestling, it's storytelling. I think we have a lot of examples in this movie of where a character makes the right choice and a character makes the character appropriate choice. And that choice is to die. Uh, we see it with Broken Sword and with Nameless most clearly. They decide I am I am going to do what is right by me, and that means that I am going to die right now. And so I think in this game it's going to be important for failure to be attractive in certain situations. Right. I, I have some I have some thoughts about this. Uh-huh. Uh, like like mechanically. Mm-hmm. That I was going to maybe chat to you to offline, but I'll do it online since since we're here and that's sure. Yeah, what well, people are interested in is yeah. that is that we want to you want to make it during a fight. All of these things are you're like you're going, you're limiting people's options, mm-hmm. right? You're going in and people's options are getting narrower and narrower. Mm-hmm. But that's no fun to play the other end of that. It's no fun to lose a fight, right? Right. So what you want to do is you want to mechanically incentivize the the option. Like you want to. If like let's say you had a bunch of tokens, mm-hmm. and on my when I'm when I do my action, I get to put more tokens on the bad result for you. Ah, that will make it more likely that you will take that because those tokens will let you do the thing that you want. Like it'll give you it'll give you the epilogue that you want, or it yeah. will give you it will give you the ability to come back after you've gone tra- and you've trained. Yeah, and it's not it's not the same as failing forward necessarily Uh, it's similar to that but it's it's you choose to fail and you suffer that consequence but there is a good reason for you to do so right there's a dramatic currency on top of that Mm -hmm. 
that makes it that makes it attractive that makes it that you would choose that just like the characters in this movie choose to die mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think there's any of these scenes where the character doesn't choose to die yeah no i think and you're right so if that if that's the option i mean that would that would have to be a heck of a, a heck of an enticement yeah right for you to, for <laughs> yeah. you to take those but that's a game design problem right totally. that's not a but that's how you make reducing conflict uh, I'm sorry, reducing choices interesting is you don't reduce choices. You just incentivize choices towards the things that you want the story to go towards. Certainly. And then my second idea for gameable ideas is something that I've teased out at least in the past couple of episodes, and I've talked more about it in this one, but it's this idea of violence as an identifier, right? And so Just Mm -hmm. for an example, we've already discussed that we'll have these codes or we're leaning toward using these codes that will define your errant. They're basically your your attributes, right? And I like the idea of a fight, especially the first fight, is a way to learn the other characters' codes or to learn their, their tricks that are up their sleeve or something like that. And so whenever you fight... It's not just to see who is tactically superior. It's also like you don't want to be too tactically superior because all of a sudden your opponent will know that you have that scale, that power. And you need to you need to be on guard about that because if you tip your hand too much and your opponent sees everything that you've got to offer, then you're in real danger. And you can open up the floodgates and be your full powerful self and maybe that'll save you, but being known completely is perilous for a knight errant. Uh, And I think that's something that I want to bake into the way combat works in this game. I think, I think that's definitely tied to our, our idea of scale and -hmm. a little bit of like what we've seen, what we saw with the, the fight between flying snow and moon, Mm -hmm. right? Where moon scale is, is vastly smaller than flying snows, Mm -hmm. but she gets just that one touch in. And then, yeah. and then that, that changes everything. And that's the kind of thing that you'd want to be able to see represented that she might've been able to defend herself if that hadn't happened. Yeah. Right? But it lets, it lets flying snow see her. They see each other in that moment. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, uh, I mean, we've already gone way long, <laughs> Yeah, yep. but we do have the stealing is art segment. And then we do have a lot of comments that we can get through this time too. So you want to go, I'm going to just blow those? through the stealing is art section really fast uh, yeah that just gives some people some resources so this is a section where i talk about things that you can steal from games that will help you develop a the wuxia story within your game so apocalypse mm-hmm. world explicitly talks about npc pc npc triangles or pc npc pc triangles mm-hmm. so it's where two characters Essentially, they both have relationships to a third character, but there is a tension because both none of them can have what they want. Mm. I love that person, but you hate that person, but we are friends. Mm-hmm. Right? And that makes that triangle that, that you can't move in any direction without pulling on the other parts of that triangle. Uh, there are parts in that book that explicitly talk about that. So it's an excellent resource. Cool. The next thing I want to talk about is Swords Without Master. Swords Without Master is a swords and sorcery game. It's very uh, past-the-stick storytelling, and it is a game that knows that the players are also their audience as well as players. And so it has phases in the game in which you can do different things. 
So you have a perilous phase in which your characters are in danger. And then there's another phase called the rogues phase where your characters can basically do what they want because this is like a Conan style character that who also has a large scale. Mm-hmm. So if you just say, show you, show me how you defeat the army uh, on your way into assassinate the king. And they can just do that. They can just do that without necessarily much danger. If you do it in one phase versus if you do it in a, a, a different phase, then you're opening yourself up to danger. And I can see that in a, uh, in a wuxia game that the fight between sky and the guards mm-hmm. is not the same kind of fight as sky and nameless. Right. Right. They don't have the same consequences and they demonstrate different things to the audience. So swords that master is a really great game and it, it knows, it knows who its audience is. So that's, I'm going to blow right past that one into the last one I'm going to talk about is Microscope. And Microscope's sort of barely a role-playing game. Yeah, uh, but it's but, really cool. It's almost it's more like really workshopping a script or something, you know. Exactly. So it's a history-building game. And we talked a lot about recontextualization of previous scenes. You know, when we go back and we, we, re- we rewatch this movie and now going through those scenes again, we can see where themes overlap or things change in an interesting way or where what we thought we were seeing is not what we saw. Yeah. And Microscope is because you are building a history, you can place events before or after other events and they also have a tone. Mm-hmm. And so if you set a, a good tone before a bad tone – it recontextualizes both of those. And then you can either, like if you take a third event, you can either put it in between those and recontextualize both of those, or you can put it at the beginning. And so it's it's sort of like like a time travel or a or like what we see in here where we keep going back and we keep telling the same story, but it, it turns out a little different every time. And this yeah, one it's very stay the same, but their context changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like to give an example that Microscope likes to give, you can like one player can start a city, a great city on mm-hmm. their turn. And then on the next player's turn, that player can destroy it. But you've still got all the time in between to tell stories within that city. And and, and it doesn't matter that the very next person destroyed the city because the very next person could be like, OK, but before the city was destroyed, this happened, you know. Right. And yeah. you can even say, OK, the city's destroyed, but that's actually a good thing. Yeah. And that's that's sort of like what we're seeing here. It's like, yes, this guy is a warlord, but that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some way to revisit past scenes and some way to maybe bid for a scene to be either positive or negative is is definitely something that should be part of this game. I like that a lot. That's the the, the last thing I have in the stealing is art section. And we have so many comments to get to. And they're so good. Yeah. I don't even know what we're going to do with all of these because yeah. when I when I say I want comments, I, I just want to feel smart. I just want to answer like easy questions. <laughs> yeah, these, come on, people. Softball these people give me us. really good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> throw me a softball here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, do you want to get started with uh, with what PK has to say? Yeah, so PK had two comments. Uh, thanks, PK Sullivan, for submitting these, by the way. And uh, the first one is – not really a question. It's just, he says, the show does have me thinking about the parallels between Wuxia and superheroes. The thoughts aren't coherent yet, but they're there. And, you know, I agree. I'm not too familiar with the superhero genre myself. I know what the movies tell me, but I haven't really read comics much in my life. 
but even then, I can see the sort of archetypal distilled imagery that happens in superhero movies would absolutely not be out of place uh, compared to the wuxia genre. Right. And you could see something like a like the dramatic triangle of Cyclops, Wolverine, and Jean Grey. Oh, certainly. As in, that could fit right into something like Hero, right? Where sure. and Cyclops and Wolverine aren't going to, they're not going to talk, right? They're going to fight each other. Right. And you would see the same thing with Iron Man, Captain America, and the Winter Soldier. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that the Wuxia is definitely, the, the Shaw characters, they're basically superheroes. Mm-hmm. So I think those line up really, I think there are other tropes where they, well, they're, they'll split off. Obviously, some are cosmetic mm-hmm. and some are story-based, but in terms of the way that c- characters interact, because even good guys fight and then they become friends in superheroes. I mean, that is a thing that happens. Absolutely. And that is a thing that happens in wuxia stories. Mm-hmm. It's it's often uh, like the preferred way to introduce characters to each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then PK's second uh, is actually a question. How do you push the conflicting obligations and beliefs of a Shah to create drama in a game, such as personal honor versus following orders? Well, I mean, Hero is rife with examples. <laughs> right. But he's talking about in a game. And I think the thing about if you do it in a game, we have to go back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, where we have mm-hmm. to incentivize players to take the action that is bad for them. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. It's almost like we can't conceptualize it as a bad move for the character. We have to conceptualize it as an atypical but narratively appropriate move for the characters. The game lets me do the, I'm going to protect my character. I'm going to do the thing that will keep my character safe. Mm-hmm. Or I can violate one of my principles or I can expand into a different direction and I can get all of this currency that I can use later. Right. Like yeah. That's that's how that's how you do it is you make sure that those obligations and those beliefs have mechanical weight and mm-hmm. then you make them attractive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then and then you have interesting when he talks about such as personal honor versus following orders. I mean, it's a huge part of these these stories mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to lay those out mechanically mm-hmm. so that like one maybe builds up, uh, you know, if you're not doing one, then the other one builds up until you. You, you can't do it and you have to satisfy your honor and then everything blows up and you die and it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> I like I like the tack you're taking over here. That's, that's good. <laughs> I was just going to say that, you know, following orders, I, I've used this word a million times at this point, but that's absolutely deference. And so listening through the episodes, I think we provide a lot of examples for how following orders comes into conflict with a character's motivation, personal motivation. Right. Like I was saying earlier, if we were playing one of those guards in that scene versus Sky, mm-hmm. you could say that that whole fight is once you get to the ending, you you express your deference to Sky. Then you go, okay, well, now that I've done that, now that I've made that decision mm-hmm. that, that fits within, then I can take that and now my story can continue in a different direction. Now I've done the right thing or I've done the yeah. the expected thing. Mm-hmm. And then later I can take that and I can go on. I can, I can train in the 36th chamber of Kung Fu and then I can mm-hmm. come back and we can fight again. It's all about incentives. Yeah, I agree. So do you want to take this question from uh, Todd? Yeah. So Todd Crapper asks us, are there any non Wuxia films like the raid that would fit the genre? And uh, you, you got to back to him a little bit on this one. 
Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I think what we're discovering in the course of this podcast is that Wuxia is way more about story beats than it is about action, right? And so it, it will, it has surprised us, and I'm sure it will continue to surprise us to see parallels between Wuxia and genres that we wouldn't have thought of. I know we've already mentioned John Wick as a movie that is basically a Western Jiang Hu story. Um, we've talked about superhero movies being similar too. Um, I haven't seen The Raid, but from what I know about it, it seems like it would be appropriate. I, I think if you were to just dial back the timeline a, a few hundred years, it could be a story about Imperial guards uh, attacking a gang or some or a bunch of gangs or something. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there are definitely parallels. Whether or not it actually fits the genre is another thing. But right, what do you, you think? You'll have to see whether because it is more about story uh, than mm-hmm. it is about action, but it is also about action, right? Mm-hmm. And I was saying that that hero is way far over under the storyline. And the action is is much less so than some some of the other movies that we've watched, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's really verging out of wuxia into just historical melodrama, mm-hmm. like it's right on that line. And you could envision it going past that and then just becoming a historical drama, and then it wouldn't be a wuxia story anymore because it wouldn't have the action that it needs. Mm-hmm. So I think part of it is, is it's the story structure. And then there are a collection of, of tropes that attach to it. And I think that's the things that separate like superhero movies and Westerns from, from Bouchoff films and stories is that they have a slightly different set of tropes, but they do share similar story elements. But I think, I think we'll definitely talk about some Western films at some point. I think maybe the episode after this one, after the next yeah, one, I mean. So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right. So Todd Zercher asks, let's see, this is more of a statement than a question, but the only RPG that I know of that uses violence as communication is Amber Diceless. Uh, in, in Amber, every character is a master of warfare by human standards. Crossing swords is one way to read another character and get a measure of their power level. Uh, have you ever played Amber, Eli? I have not. I've heard a lot okay. about it. Um, so it sounds... The- totally appropriate yeah so it it does do a lot of similar things so in amber you have a warfare stat there's only four stats in the game and if you go up against a character that is higher in one of those stats in a conflict that uses that stat they will beat you every time Mm. that very much is like what we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. where if you go up against a member of your family and their warfare is twice your warfare they just there's no dice in amber so it's just they they win and they can do they can essentially do what they want to you given how far apart you are in scores mm-hmm. and then you have to change the you have to change the dramatic situation in order to challenge them uh and this is represented in the in the books that they're based on uh so it's really good the only problem with amber <laughs> as much as i love it and as provocative and interesting as it was when it came out is that Mm -hmm. there's actually very little structure in the game besides that Uh, to, to do what it says that it's doing. Yeah. It's all left to the GM and it's a little, it's a little rough in that respect, but a point well taken Todd. I think that's uh, uh, an excellent thing to look at is, is especially in terms of rank scale and level in terms of the knight errants that are in the story. 
Absolutely, yeah. And it, it merits further investigation for sure. So thanks for uh, passing it along to us. I think JJ and Phil have really closely related questions. Should we just tackle both of them at the same time? Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, JJ Lanza asks, how does martial style relate to the communication? For example, crane versus snake or sword versus spear. Is there a lingua franca? And then uh, Phil Vecchione asks, can you discuss the kinds of story beats in a fight, how the fight goes back and forth, beats that reveal information, beats that display characteristics, etc. And so I'll start off by saying that JJ's question is how I was getting caught up in this theory that you were presenting about violence as communication. I kept thinking, because I'm such a choreography nut, I would look at the choreography and be like, what are, what are the, what are the moves communicating? Is that what he's trying to get at? I don't, I don't know. And I think it's clear now that we're talking more about thematic elements. We're not talking so much about the granularity of fighting styles and weapons and that sort of thing. But I think there's still room for that sort of thing. I think the five deadly venoms, for example, they had, their fighting and their power and their character was so closely tied together that it wasn't really possible to separate their style from their their motivation or their power or anything like that. I agree. I I think that a person's fighting style is a representation of their character. Mm-hmm. I think Five Deadly Five Deadly Venoms is an is an excellent example i mean even nameless in hero is a really great example because he is he is swift and he is a little obscured right in his fighting style yeah and that goes towards what his character is Mm -hmm. Uh, now i was coming at more from phil's perspective because i think we could take i have hamlet tip points sitting out here on the desk Mm -hmm. uh, because i was gonna i was gonna get to like maybe breaking down one of these fights using that. And I think we should do that in the future is I will go through and I will plot out a fight and I will say, this is, this is an upbeat of a specific kind. And this is a downbeat of a specific kind. Yeah. The the thing that failed me in hero was that they are very, they're very simple conflicts. Right. <laughs> uh, and they're fairly short. Yeah. Whereas if I had gone and I had done it with iron monkey, I think you could see things that individual moments in the fight would do would do different things and they would actually fulfill they would not just be emotional communication which is most of what we see in hero is we see the emotional communication and they actually just talk about the actual expositional stuff Mm -hmm. in something like iron monkey there's actually fighting exposition yeah there is information that is revealed that lays pipe for a revelation later Absolutely. I think Phil and JJ, I think just keep listening because I think that's really the heart of what we're talking about here. I think mm-hmm. we'll get to it uh, a little bit more next time. And at some point I would really like to just devote and just pick apart a fight scene sort of beat by beat. Yeah. Make an entire episode about that. I don't know how interesting that is to listen to. I may try it first and then, and then we'll see. It may just be something that I post in the community. Well, I think it would be worth examining, and I think both of us could lend a fairly unique perspective to it as well. Um, I, because, like I've said, you know, I, I could definitely weigh in on the choreography and how that relates to the story, and I think you could weigh in on the story and how that relates to the choreography. And so, coming at it from those two different perspectives, I think would be pretty valuable. I think that's what I find missing in a lot of wuxia RPGs mm-hmm. is that it's. I won't say it's easy because no game design is easy, but it is simpler to pick one or the other. Mm -hmm. And to do both, I think, is where we are going to hit the weeds. 
Yeah. So uh, what we can say is that we we will consider doing that. <laughs> we'll <laughs> no, see I mean, if it works. For sure. And... I, it will keep coming up, for sure. Yeah. All right. So our next question comes from Per Fulmer, who is an artist who did some work uh, on the Blackwood with me. So, uh, Which nice is now available, you. and you should go buy it. Ah, that's right. Yeah, shameless plug. It's on DriveThruRPG. Check that stuff out. Out. But anyway, Per says, I'd love to hear your opinion about the way they use weightlessness and what they mean to portray through that. This is an interesting question. Weightlessness, also called light body skill, also called chingong in uh, wuxia fiction. It seems to be a pretty ubiquitous technique a lot of the time. I mean, it depends on what, I guess you could say, power level you're working in. in right. We In Hero, we, we are at the very upper level of this. Right. Before we start to get into the flying monk territory of some of, some of the old tales. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would say um, I don't know that I read too much into it, to be honest with you. I think it's a demonstration of a certain level of martial skill. To jump back to the Blackwood really quickly, I have an equivalent ability called Leaf Step. And on purpose, I made it something that you can only get after you've gained a few advancements. Uh, it's not something that you can have right off the bat because I think it's a demonstration of like I said, a certain threshold of power that you've passed. And I don't know that I see much more in it than that, but I'm curious what you think, Eric. I think in Hero specifically, the weightlessness creates that heterotopic space, mm-hmm. like what we were talking about earlier. And it also makes it that the environment, while it's important, kind of recedes in a certain way mm-hmm. so that we can focus on the emotional action that's going on between the two actors and yeah. the and the movements that they are doing that are passing information between each other and to us. And so we can see them focused and we're not so focused on the space that they're occupying, but that they're still occupying space because if they were completely devoid of any sort of reference, then the fight would, would lose any sort of coherency that's happening. Yeah. So that's what I think about it in, in hero. I think generally the light body technique is part of a, tro- a set of tropes that are in Wuxia stories and they mm-hmm. do demonstrate personal power and they demonstrate the scale of the character. And our last question comes from Ovi Wakesburg and he asks, what makes crouching tiger hidden dragon so good? And I guess you'll have to find out next time Ovi. Because that's what we're talking about. Yeah, it is. We're about stakes. It absolutely deserves its own episode, too, because I, I've i said Iron Monkey is my favorite Wuxia movie, but I have there's not a doubt in my mind that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the best one. So it was really funny. So when I got the DVD for Iron Monkey, uh-huh. there's a big blurb on it, you know, one of those critic blurbs. Yeah, it yeah. Says, More fun than Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. And I was <laughs> like... <laughs> All right, Iron Monkey, whatever. I and mean, I was like, no, that's actually true. It is more comp. fun <laughs> than than Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It yeah. is not a better movie. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it takes place during the same time period, and the costuming is pretty similar. So I, I understand the parallels that they're drawing between it. And also, of course, it was released shortly after Crouching Tiger hang- came out, re-released on DVD anyway. Right. Um, and so it makes sense to me. But uh, yeah, I, I see that quote every time I pull the movie out, and I'm like, well... Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong anyway. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm really excited to watch that one. I uh, I love that movie so much. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to watch it again and uh, and really dig into it. Uh, so we're going to be talking about stakes. Mm-hmm. 
in combats in in wuxia films and crouching tiger has some of the highest stakes in any movie um at some point we'll have to start watching a movie that's bad (laughs) yeah Uh, or like it's not it's not quite as good because i love hero and i love crouching tiger hidden dragon Mm -hmm. but there's often more that you can learn from a slightly flawed film oh yeah than from films that are perfect I agree completely. And I think we've got some on our list. We'll just have to make sure we bump some of those up in the queue. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll do something fun after Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. and uh, But we'll probably be pushing close to the end of the year at that point. I think so, yeah. All right. Should we wrap this thing up? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, everyone, thanks for tuning in for episode three of Jung Hu Hustle. I am Eli Kurtz, and I'm here with my co-host. And I'm Eric Farmer. Eli, why don't you tell them where they can find you online? Yeah, that sounds great. So, I spend most of my time on Twitter these days, at ZapDynamic. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, I'm also on Google Plus under my real-life actual name, Eli Kurtz. You can also find me on Facebook, at the Mythic Gazetteer. And on DriveThruRPG, we have some products there, most notably the Blackwood Errantry Codex, which we just released this past week. Uh, it's been quite a journey, and it's it kind of feels like it's coming to an end, but it kind of feels like it's just beginning. I feel like I'm sending a child off to college, you know? Sure, you're rapidly uh, approaching a middle. Yeah, so absolutely. <laughs> but congratulations. I'm really excited to, to, to read it and to look at it. Thank you. I'm really excited to know your thoughts. I mean, it's really closely tied up with Wuxia. So it's, uh, in particular, I'm excited to know your thoughts. But Eric, where can people find you? You can find me at my website, dogpoweredvehicle.com. You can also find me on Twitter, where I'm fairly active, at Eric M. Farmer. You can find me malingering around the Misdirected Mark community under my own name, Eric Farmer. And uh, other than that, I think that's about it. I mean, you could find me on Facebook if you wanted to, but those other places are good. Yeah. All right, Eli, let's say goodbye to the good folks. And let's make sure that we concentrate on making our Kung Fu stronger. Farewell, everyone. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.